Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, I'm sitting in the driveway and I've just received a package in my letterbox. Um, let's open this bad boy up. Okay, and here we go. So, oh, it's quite shiny. There's red on one side and green on the other with a bit of a zigzag pattern going down the middle. Um, right in the very center is like a rectangular, I guess, rendering of a Christmas tree with the telecom logo underneath it. Um, on the back, just completely plain green with the telecom logo right at the bottom. So, a Christmas card of sorts from December 1993. Not our card that we're looking for, unfortunately. And the one thing I was hoping to get from this was some indication of where this might have been printed. So, no luck, really. Pretty cool to have, though. Now, the prank of the year. And savage it is, too. On closer inspection, a delight becomes a fright for the phone company. I'm really disappointed about the whole thing. Now look at this. Look carefully. T-E-L-E-C-O-M, telecom, and S-U-X, sucks. Oh, yes. Ain't nothing to work out. Ain't nothing to know. Ain't no way you can grow unless you let go. Ain't nothing to work out. Welcome back to Prank of the Year. In the last episode, we started to unpack the details gleaned from an article published in the Otago Daily Times newspaper back in December 93. Today, we're going to keep pulling on those threads and see what starts to unravel. Having dug into the wider context of the Telecom Art Awards in the early 90s, and uncovering as much as we humanly could about the 1993 exhibition without firing up a time machine, let's turn our attention instead to what happened immediately afterwards. You'll recall from the Otago Daily Times article that there was some confusion about the painting's whereabouts following the conclusion of the exhibit at the Otago Art Society. After the winning painting by Zuna Wright was chosen, Mr Dixon was supposed to pick the painting up early last month. 
When he called to collect the painting, Telecom was unsure of its whereabouts, Mr Dixon said. So here we have an artist, Gray Dixon, whose work has been on display for a couple of weeks, attempting to pick it up, only to discover that Telecom has somehow misplaced it? This was puzzling to me, and I wanted to know how a painting could have gone AWOL. One piece of the historic material that the good folk at the Hocken Library had unearthed for us was a Telecom Art Awards entry form for the 1991 Otago Regional Competition. According to the terms and conditions listed on that form, Other than the winning entry, all entries must be collected from the Otago Arts Society galleries from October the 2nd. All entries not collected by the 18th of October become property of Telecom Directories Limited. Remember, this was from the 1991 entry form, so the dates wouldn't necessarily match the 1993 competition. Still, I feel like it's a pretty safe assumption that the post-exhibition pickup process would probably have been the same. Artists would have had a couple of weeks to pick up their artworks before their paintings were considered abandoned and would have become Telecom's property. According to the article, Telecom was unsure where the painting was. But if finalists were supposed to pick up their art from the gallery, how and why did Telecom have it? Whatever happened, the painting ended up in Telecom's possession until Gray finally tracked it down. He called back two days later and the painting was still missing. That same night, a telecom worker from Wellington telephoned Mr Dixon to ask if the painting might be used on a telecom Christmas card. Mr Dixon was quite happy about the arrangement and asked for some cards to send to friends after they were printed in Wellington at the end of last month. Two days after his initial contact, Dixon gets back in touch with telecom to see where his painting is. He's called by someone from telecom in Wellington that very night. Good news, the painting had been located. Even better news, Telecom liked the painting, enough to turn it into a Christmas card even. Gray Dixon was chuffed, as I would have been if one of my amateur works had been selected for this purpose. It wasn't going to grace the cover of the local phone book, but not a bad consolation prize after all. Back in episode 2 I told you about a New Zealand Herald article that I'd found. And while this article didn't have as much detail as the ODT article, It did end on an intriguing note. Telecom's 19 other Christmas card designs appear to have escaped harm. Before I started digging into the story, I assumed that the card with Gray's artwork was the only card that Telecom had produced that Christmas. I now know that the Telecom Art Awards were split into 18 regional competitions. Were the Christmas cards also regional? If they were, would this mean that Gray's card wasn't even distributed outside of Otago? Perhaps if we found one of these other artists... Maybe they could shed some light on this whole thing. Ever since I was very little, I wanted to be an artist, and what they in those days called a commercial artist. I'm chatting to Christine Lockett, an artist and designer based in Wellington, New Zealand. In 1993, Christine entered the Telecom Art Awards Wellington Regional Competition, and she made it through to the finals. Like Gray Dixon, while her art didn't end up on the phone book, it was selected as one of Telecom's 20 Christmas card designs that year. Um, I studied fine arts at the University of Canterbury. Um, I majored in graphic design and printmaking. I did teach art at Southland Polytechnic, um, graphic design, printmaking, for some time uh, before I moved up to um, uh, Wellington. Um, And I worked at the Open Polytechnic in Lower Hutt um, in the learning design department. I'm a member of the Print Council Aotearoa and quite an active member and tried to get um, work into exhibitions every now and then. 
Arts and I've got work in the Southland Museum, I've got work in the Southland Hospital. I had a piece exhibited at the Douse back in the, well, in the 90s, that I was pretty pleased about that. I think it's a shame that things like the Art Awards aren't still happening. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that that used to happen that doesn't happen anymore, which encouraged um, artists and yeah, big corporations like Telecom can well afford to do things like that. And the uh, uh, the telecom thing is obviously a bit of a highlight, although I have to say, until you reminded me, I'd sort of forgotten because it was such a long time ago. But yeah, when I look back, I should have it in my CV, I guess. Oh yes, it was the first time I produced artwork for the award because I, I hadn't long moved to Wellington and um, it was a landscape or seascape of Wellington. I was living in um, Eastbourne and it was a representation to me of the view when I, when I when they asked me to put the artwork on the card, I was really pleased. I mean, I'd had another piece of mine used in one of the Lonely Planet books, and I was pleased about that too. It's sort of like a recognition, I guess, that, you know, you've done a nice piece of work. But I do remember that I got a letter asking if I would give them permission, which of course I did, and they sent me some cards too. I don't even know if I ever got the artwork back. Part of the conditions of using it on the on the card may have been that they acquired it because I can't see it here and yet I've got the other two pieces so yeah. So as you know this whole story is about a card that came out the same year as yours the one from Otago which was defaced. Do you remember this happening at all? The defaced card is something that it's the first time I've heard of it when you asked me about it. Christine was the latest in a long line of people who had no knowledge or recollection of this incident. But at this point, that's a pretty common theme. It is interesting that Dixon's painting somehow made its way from his hometown in Dunedin all the way up to Christine's stomping ground. Let's go back to the ODT article. Mr Dixon was quite happy about the arrangement and asked for some cards to send to friends after they were printed in Wellington at the end of last month. Wellington, New Zealand's capital city, home of the telecom head office and over 600 kilometres from Dunedin as the crow flies. The telecom media relations officer, Clive Litt, said from Wellington that after internal investigations, the company was satisfied none of our employees was involved in it. Mr Litt was not prepared to give the name of the printing firm responsible for the cards and described the incident as unpleasant. He did not want to comment further. Frustratingly for us, telecom were keeping their lips sealed about the printing company that they used for this job. 30 years later, this gave me the annoying task of finding and cold-calling as many well-established printers in the Wellington region as I could. At the same time, I scoured libraries across Auckland for any printed content produced by Telecom. I found a bunch of historic advertising material, corporate publications and stakeholder documents, and what I was hoping to find was any reference to where they were printed. Hours of searching yielded exactly one result. The back page of Telecom's annual report from 1992 featured a small note acknowledging the company that printed it, an Auckland-based printing firm that no longer exists. It was a dead end, but all was not lost just yet. If I couldn't find the exact printing firm who made the cards, then the next best thing to do would be to find someone who was well-versed in how print operations worked back in the 90s. And once I started looking down this road, I hit the jackpot. This is a 1965 machine, still being used daily until it breaks and we're welding stuff and sorting stuff out. This is the newer, faster 
uh, type of machine and that's this is the same sort of size sheet as that one and then you got the small babies over there. As you can probably tell from the ambient noise I'm standing next to a big machine. Specifically it's a printing press. It's probably about the size of a city bus. I'm at SCG, one of the biggest printing firms in New Zealand. They print everything here, from the tiny little labels that get sealed around juice bottle lids, to billboards that are visible from the side of a motorway. And what you put on the floor is your next magazine. Right. So the magazine's made up like that, so each of the times when the printer's printing them, they fold it up to make sure the pagination's running in the right order, so when they collate it to be bound and get a book, they're in the right place. Now you imagine he's looking at his colour, he's looking at his balance, and some little twerp has written dickhead over there. Yeah. Are you going to see it? If it looks like it might be part of the image, you probably won't. I'm being led through this mammoth space teeming with people, machinery and noise by Brian Landry, the SCG General Manager and my tour guide for the afternoon. Brian is a veteran of the local printing industry, and I'm here to pick his brains about how things worked back in the 90s. Uh, my background is a trade in 1980 um, in photolithography, which was the making of film and plates and proofs for the printing process. So your question about the greeting card and how it may have come about um, is quite easy for me to answer. So they would take the artwork, which generally would be put onto a scanning machine, and the scanner would separate out the picture into cyan, magenta, yellow and black, which are the four printing colours that we use to produce a picture and it would have been sized to the size of the uh, front of the card or whatever, it would then be given to somebody who had the trade of doing a film planning or photolithography, which is what I was trained to do, that would be laid up and made into final films ready, for, ready to make plates and a, a contract proof, which was used to be called a colour art. That would then be signed off by the client. Uh, and then once it was signed off, we'd take those positive films and we would take those and put them onto plates in a dark room and we'd expose those plates to light and would transfer the image from the film to the plate. It's at that stage that somebody could have used a, a, a magic marker or whatever one of those sorts of pens might be. They might have written something onto one of the films and when that was exposed to the plates, it would have imaged as part of that plate because that was our working theory as well that you know there's there was potential that the plate got damaged um what we actually found though was that the it was actually the original artwork that had been defaced it's not ours, it's not ours to question if you get given an image and get told here's the picture put it into a box there and say happy christmas from telecom um we don't go and say well you you shouldn't be writing those things on your image if that's what's in the image the client would have firstly seen, if it was an agency or whatever, would have firstly seen the proof of the picture, because that's what we used to do, is show them the colour first, then we put it together and show them a proof of the final job before it actually went to plate. And quite often there were trade houses, so one of the companies that we merged with here to make SCG, Image Centre, that was a scanning house. Yet not everyone had scanners, not everyone could afford a scanner, I mean it's it's a bit with this technology, you know, people think that printing is a commodity. Um, well, unless you're prepared to invest, you know, three to five million dollars for a press, you don't have a press. So a scanner was additional and is additional to that. So 
yeah, I suppose um, it was quite common to accept scans supplied and lay it up and get it printed. Brian raises a really interesting point here. Scanning technology did indeed exist back in the 90s and was widely used in commercial printing. But unlike the peripheral you might plug into your laptop today, scanners were big, complicated and expensive machines that required specialist knowledge to operate. Not only that, there weren't that many of them back then, and many printing firms in the country would have outsourced this part of the process through to a dedicated scanning house. Logically, whoever scanned Gray Dixon's painting would have been the last person to handle it before it was turned into a cart. This person could have been based at the Wellington printing firm, if they had had the scanning technology in-house, otherwise they would have been based at a separate scanning facility. We do know that it was the original painting that was defaced. The Telecom Sucks message and the clear logo, they weren't etched into a printing plate and they weren't added digitally into the image file. These embellishments, they would have been scanned along with the rest of the painting. What this means is that if the artwork hadn't been tampered with already, whoever did the scanning would have been the last person with the opportunity to deface the painting. Wherever the defacement took place, the fact remains that Telecom didn't pick up on it when they signed off on the final card design. I wondered how common this was. Surely this wouldn't have been the first time that a client wasn't looking hard enough, and that they missed something that shouldn't have been signed off. I asked Brian about this, and with an alarming sense of calm, he casually let slip that the Telecom Sucks card, that wasn't even the first time that a Telecom product had been tampered with. Get a load of this story. I know, I know a young man uh, in Wellington that he and one of his uh, apprentice buddies defaced the Yellow Pages adverts uh, with uh, some graphic uh, content, um, shall we say, which actually appeared in the finished bound books and went to market. My jaw was on the floor at this revelation. That story, coming up after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Brian at SCG might have been keeping the specifics of this particular story close to his chest when we met, but he did pass on the contact details of the Yellow Pages vandal, who we're going to call Mr. Yellow to protect his identity. Are you, okay, so first questions first, are you okay with us using your name in this podcast? Okay, we're going to call him Tom, which, you know, is his name. The uh, trade I um, trained in in the 70s is now gone. I'm completely obsolete, but I'm actually a highly qualified photolithographer. Um, A photolithographer did everything between the designer and the printer. 
Um, so um, in the old days, um, the, the original printing uh, process was uh, letterpress, mm-hmm. which was uh, direct paper. Then we went to offset, and that went from a printing plate to a roller to paper. Um, now, the photolytho process, uh, as I said, everything went onto film uh, before it was exposed onto a um, printing plate. And um, this wee story that involved me and one other person, long story short, um, this other chap and I were best of friends, apprentices together, and working in, um, because we were apprentices in the um, government department and um, government printing office. The government printing office was set up in 1865, when Wellington became New Zealand's capital city. The office was responsible for printing Hansard, the official record of Parliament, as well as other government publications from a large building near Lambton Quay. In the 1970s, telephone directories across the country were printed there too, including the 1978 Wellington Yellow Pages. But what we did is, in the old Yellow Pages, they um, everything worked alphabetically. Mm-hmm. And if, the, you, um, if there was a, a two-inch space left at the bottom of a column, but the next advert was two and a half inches long, then that two-inch space was filled up by what they called uh, telecom fill-ins. And that was just a whole bunch of um, self-promotional little cartoons and things about um, telecom, right. and that would just fill, that would just stick into um, fill in that space. Um, and what this other chap and I did, we were working in the um, composition department of the Yellow Pages, um, we got a whole bunch of these, uh, well, not that many, but we got a bunch of these uh, little cartoon drawings and scratched little things in them and then put them back in the files. Three months later, the Wellington phone book was compiled and somebody had, and I'm not sure who, it's one of two people, but one of the compositors down there saw what the other chap and I were doing, must have spent hours going through all the film files, found everything that we'd altered, put it all aside, waited three or four months, whatever it was, until the Wellington phone book was compiled and then stuck them all in the phone book. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah, and there were some rude drawings. Um, what happened was that um, it got published. Nobody noticed it. But there's a, even though it, there's a whole bunch of uh, checks, there's um, people um, that work in pairs that um, proofread every word in, in the... In the um, um, phone books, they missed it, and I've been working at the actual plant where the uh, yellow pages were printed, and um, they're printed up 12 pages at a time before they get folded in, um, and the printers would see a single letter or a single number beginning to wear on um, out of these 12 pages and get the plates remade. So there was lots of stops, lots of people must have seen it. And everybody had a giggle and went, oh, I'm not going to stop this, and just pretended they didn't see it. Um, When it finally did get published, um, everybody found out about it at the same time. Um, My best friend at the time came to me um, 8 o'clock in the morning. I got to work, and he was in a panic going, fuck, fucking those things have been printed. Um, And uh, uh, an old lady phoned up the Truth newspaper, and so the media found out out about it. Um, the people responsible found out about it, and also the government print itself found out about it all on the same morning. It was quite a, um, yes. <laughs> Tom was good enough to send me some pics of his artwork, and 
Well, let's just say that they're exactly what you'd expect an 18-year-old in his position to produce. Think cartoon figures with additional attributes. If you're curious, check out our Instagram. Now, back to the Christmas card. So, Grey Dixon's painting has gone AWOL, but it's eventually found in Wellington where it's produced into a Christmas card. What happened next? Mr Dixon got his painting back, along with the cards, and sent the cards out to friends. Then a friend turned up, pointing out the telecom sucks message, which was painted carefully on the card, matching the picture's tone. Also painted in was a clear communication symbol. So it was one of Dixon's friends who first discovered the crime, which, presumably, had gone unnoticed by everyone else involved. Whoever this friend was, they must have had the eyesight of a hawk. The use of the term painted carefully is intriguing here too. It implies that whoever wrote the message and drew the clear logo used paint to do so, and paint with a similar pigment and tone to the one used in the original artwork. Without being able to see the painting itself, it's hard to know how much stock to put in this description, but it's worth keeping in mind. And how did Gray Dixon respond to this discovery? Well, according to Paul Holmes... He's mad about it. And this is backed up by the ODT article too. Mr Dixon was angry that someone had defaced his painting and contacted Telecom. Dixon had every right to be upset and angry about this. I would have been if I was in his position. I do wonder how much, if any, of that anger came coursing through the phone line when he called Telecom to inform them about what his friend had found. And how would Telecom have reacted? Again, the ODT can shed some light on this for us. The Telecom Media Relations Officer, Clive Litt, said from Wellington that after internal investigations, the company was satisfied none of our employees was involved in it. Unfortunately, we can't ask Mr Litt about this. He passed away in 2022. It's unclear whether he would have had any recollection of this event anyway. His former colleague Chris Galloway, who we spoke to in episode 2, he didn't remember anything about it at all. I am struck by the idea that an internal investigation was held though. What would have prompted such a move? Was Telecom concerned that it could have been an inside job? The choice of language that Clive Litt is using here is also interesting. Satisfied none of our employees was involved in it. It could very well be true that no current telecom employees were under suspicion. But in the months and years leading up to this, how many telecom employees had been let go? According to Jan Lipsky, who we spoke to in episode 2, telecom were losing staff at a rapid rate throughout the 90s. Could it have been one of them? I was very interested to learn more about the nature, scope and execution of this internal investigation in late 93. Ironically, if Telecom had been a government entity, or even a state-owned enterprise at this time, then they would have been obligated to send records to Archives NZ, the government's record-keeping agency, and we may have been able to access them. Alas, as a private company, Telecom's records aren't public. I've got no idea what their archival processes are, and whether any internal memos or reports about this investigation would have even been filed away for this long. Telecom rebranded as Spark back in 2014, and I reached out to the media team at Spark NZ to ask them what their archival processes were like. A few weeks later, I got a response. Kia ora, Craig. Thanks for your email. We've tried to ID this information, but unfortunately, no success. Sorry we couldn't help you out. Disappointing, yes. But not really surprising. I mean, it was a hell of a long shot to begin with. So where does this leave us? At this stage, all of our avenues of inquiry seem to be dead-end streets. 
It was time for Luke and I to regroup. Man, we've spent a lot of time on this. <laughs> um, More than I'm willing to admit, yep. Yeah, we've we've covered a lot of ground, dude. Like, we've... I've spoken to a lot of people. We've found... I, I mean, I feel like we're getting close to the end of what we can find, what's kind of discoverable, you know? Well, the format for these has always been uh, motive and opportunity, right? That's mm-hmm. Those are the two words we always talked about. That's what we built the first right. uh, the, you know, episodes two through four on. Yeah. Um, so motive, we talked about... Um, <laughs> At length, yeah. Yeah, layoffs <laughs> um, at Telecom. We talked about customer dissatisfaction with the monopolies. Mm-hmm. We talked about... Um, opposition like clear you know competitors in the marketplace yeah no you're right it's basically it's the customers telecom staff or former staff and competitors in the industry like all potentially potential suspects yeah absolutely and and they all have opportunity at different stages of the painting's journey Mm. from the artist to the application and exhibition to telecom back to the artist yeah. Um, so what we kind of identified, you know, did it happen at the beginning when the art was created? Mm-hmm. Did it happen while it was on exi- uh, while it was being exhibited in Dunedin? Mm-hmm. Did it happen while it was with Telecom? Mm-hmm. Or the last opportunity would be, did it happen while it was with the printers? And I mean, we we haven't seen the painting, but no. I am I am pretty satisfied just based on that standard definition homes thing you know they had some tight zoom ins mm. i could see it being overlooked throughout any of those processes yeah the other thing too is that you know you look at something so many times yeah you, you don't you, you you miss detail you know so whoever was looking at it at, tele, at telecom they would have glossed over it most likely and that also justifies why maybe gray didn't see it when he got the cards back yeah. Per the ODT article, but yeah. a friend immediately spotted it. Yeah. Mm. So, unless we veer from that mode of an opportunity framework, what does that leave us? Well, how do we end this thing? I mean, I think we're both kind of circling around the same, um, around the same thing here. I feel like there's one, there's one person we need to, we need to find. We're going to find Great Exxon. We're going to find Great Exxon. If I knew that tomorrow would be the last day that I live. On the next episode of Prank of the Year. Maybe it's a form of sabotage advertising? What the hell is an art crime? Why would you want your artwork that you've discussed it because it's been desecrated in the public arena? I think I, I just think New Zealand has a really interesting, vibrant, rich history of protest. Prank of the Year is written and produced by Luke Watkinson and me, Craig Major. Thanks in this episode go to Lee Harris, Catherine, Nick, Kate, Amy, and the team from Hocken Library at the University of Otago, Bruce Sargent, Christine Lockett. Ruth Cobb at PrintNZ, Brian Landry and the team at SCG, Tom, the former Yellow Pages apprentice, and the media team at SparkNZ. Maddie Mitchell was the voice of the Otago Daily Times and New Zealand Herald articles. 
Nancy Lan was the voice of the Spark Media team email. Our opening theme song is Let Go by Kong Fui. Closing music is Cliché by Deluxe Boy. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and consider leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help, and we appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Do you know anything about the DeFace Telecom Christmas card? We'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us directly and anonymously by email at telecomsucks1993, or one word, at gmail.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.